Hi, everybody, and welcome to Phillies Backstage. I'm Tom Burgoyne, joined by John Brazier, and we are uh, recording this from the Philadelphia Cricket Club. Right, John? Uh, it's the annual Phillies uh, sponsorship uh, golf outing. One of the highlights of the year. It's great. It kind of culminates the whole alumni weekend. We've had a great weekend, John, uh, seeing all our uh, old friends and some Phillies greats, some Hall of Famers, and speaking of which... Jim Cott joins us today. How you doing, Jim? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. And Jim, you threw out the first pitch on, you kicked off opening or alumni weekend by throwing out the first pitch on Friday night. How was that? That was fun. You know, they were so nice, the Phillies, to do that. Debbie Nacito called me last year and they were going to honor me after my Hall of Fame induction. And uh, Margie and I, my wife Margie and I each had a little three-day bout with COVID. And then she called me this year and I said, yeah, Deb, you don't have to. I was a very small part of the Phillies. I didn't have my best individual years there, but she wanted to do it, and it's it's just been a it's a great honor, and it's been a great weekend. Well, Jim, I gotta say, uh, it was great hearing you. I guess that was Friday night on the broadcast too. And you said that before. You said, oh, you know, you we weren't happy with, I guess, your performance when you played for the Phillies. Uh, but why is it, John? We we're John and I are the same age. Was Jim Cott one of our favorite players? Well, yes. And, and also, when you look at your career, I mean, <laughs> yeah. what, a, what a career as far as your playing career and then your broadcasting career. So, I mean, you have over 50 plus years as a player and broadcaster. And then obviously, you get into the Hall of Fame. You've written books. You've done a million different things. One of the things I'm most impressed with is uh, I was reading through your bio that you and here we are in a golf course and we're about to play in the alumni outing. And you've shot your age or better four times if I'm not mistaken, three times left-handed, one times right-handed? Uh, well, now at 84, I've, I've done it quite a few times left-handed, <laughs> but uh, this happened when I was 75 in the same week. I Because I shot at uh, 75 right-handed and left-handed, not on the same day. But when I took up the game, that's how old I am, when I took up the game in the 70s, I was in my early 30s, they, they didn't have left-hand equipment. Huh. So I just had to learn to play right-handed. Huh. And then in the 90s, the equipment came along, and so I switched, and now I play like uh, today I've got uh, seven left-hand clubs, seven right. I was going to say, <laughs> how do you know which way to go? Yeah. Uh, can I just say, I could live to be 115 years old and not shoot uh, my, my age? Well, how did, when, when, you, when they first came out of the left-handed clubs, how easy was it? I mean, what did you shoot that first round? You know, you remember? You'd, be, you'd be surprised. I whiffed the ball. Because I had so much baseball swing, and there's that little ball sitting there not moving. Right. And, you know, I just I wanted to hit it out there like you do a baseball, and it was embarrassing. I had some, some seasoned pros that would tell my friends, you, you got to tell Jim not to try this. He's, he's wasting his time. He's in his 50s. And, and so years ago, years later with that same guy, I think I shot like 78 or something. And I said, Ron, I'm glad I stayed with it. But yeah, it took me a while to actually find the ball, you know, in, on the ground in the right spot. Right. Well, well you, you had a, a long, a long career, as John said, uh, playing the game 25 years uh, in the big leagues. And, um, you know, you, you were a good athlete. I remember you as a good hitting pitcher, right, Jim? Oh, Charlie Manuel and I, we, we kid, we kid it on the bus out here. Charlie and I were teammates for six years and Bill Rigney loved to pinch hit for the pitchers. And I'd have a one run lead eighth inning in the on deck circle. And Charlie would tap me on the shoulder and say, Kitty, I'm hitting for you. I said, Charlie, will you get back in the dugout? We're trying to win this game. I got more at bats <laughs> nice. than you do. Nice, Charlie right? would admit that. <laughs> but yeah, I got to, to pinch hit once in a while. I think as a kid, uh, people of my era, 
we were baseball players that just happened to be pitchers mm. yeah. because we learned to slide, we learned to bunt, we learned to run the bases. It wasn't as specialized as it right, is now. Right. right. And then, you know, pitching, I was just talking to Kevin Gross and he talked about how what a good hitter he was and he, he would have rather been a hitter, but he had such a good curveball, they made him a pitcher. <laughs> mm. Now, again, you started, your career started in the late 50s, right? And it carried you all the way to 1983. So back in the 50s, I was talking to Larry Christensen before the uh, uh, earlier today. He said one of your first batters that you faced was Ted Williams. I faced Ted Williams uh, toward the end of 59, yes. Uh, the first batter I actually faced, <clears throat> excuse me, was Louis Aparicio okay. with the White Sox, <clears throat> excuse me, in 59 when they won the pennant. And then I got to, to face Williams uh, uh, twice the end of 59. He got hits both times, and then I... I did get him out in 1960. Mm. I faced him one more time, but uh, and then got to know Ted. I spoke at the uh, dedication of his tunnel out to the airport, so uh, that, that's always a nice honor to say you faced Ted Williams. Oh, and I know Charlie would always say that that's the hitter that he you know emulated, that he yeah. you know learned from. Um, but talk about, I mean, it's a walking history book. I was in a car a couple of years ago, and I, I now do it every year, where I take Bobby Chance out oh, to a golf yeah. tournament. And when I was talking to Bobby, you know, we start the conversation. We had an hour uh, ride out to a, the club. And I start talking to him, and next thing you know, he starts talking about um, Mickey Mantle and all these different players that, that Tom and I just missed, mm. you know, watching. Uh, and it literally, I started getting, like, goosebumps, you know, just by, by listening to him st- tell all these names and stories. And I know Bobby Chance was one of your heroes, right? Growing yeah, up. He was my boyhood idol. Right. Yeah, I, I actually learned how to field my position by listening to the radio. Hmm. And people say, how do you do that? Well, every Sunday I could listen to eight games, White Sox, Cubs, Tigers, and the Braves had moved to Milwaukee. Every team played a doubleheader. Monday was off. So when the Philadelphia A's, and my dad was a big Connie Mack fan, right. went to Lefty Grove's induction in 1947, and uh, they would say, well, here's Bobby Shantz, best fielding pitcher in baseball, lands on the balls of his feet. He's always in position for a comebacker, ready to go left or right. I go to my backyard with a tennis ball, boom, boom, one after the other. It's probably maybe 11 or 12 then. Fast forward to when I'm 19, I go to my first spring training. We go through the pitcher's drills. And uh, the coach said, kid, you look just like Bobby Shantz. Wow. <laughs> and then about four years ago, because Bobby's 97 now, I'm 84, Rawlings Gold Glove called me, uh, Rawlings, and said, uh, you know, at the Gold Glove dinner, I present the awards to the current winners. So they said, we're going to give out legacy awards. Have you ever heard of Bobby Shantz? <laughs> I said, heard of him? Yeah, he's got boyhood idols. So, right. <laughs> uh, they got a car, and they took Bobby up to uh, New York. I got some wonderful pictures of uh, he and I. You know, he's 5'6", oh, I'm 6'5". Yeah, right, quite a difference. Uh, yeah, but he's he was always, when it comes up, he was my boyhood hero. Yeah, we love Bobby, and uh, you guys both keep yourself in great shape. I know I can't believe Bobby's 97. I mean, yeah. he he has the spry and, uh, right. you know, jump in his step. And, uh, he you was know, golfing up until two years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he had a fall, and he had a, yep. heard his elbow mowing the lawn. Cutting the lawn, I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Did you pattern your, I know uh, you were talking a little bit about this on the air on Friday, and I know I, when I played wiffle ball, and I was just messing, where if I was messing around, stick ball with the friends, I'd emulate your windup. Really? And so, yes. And so, uh, is that something you got from Bobby as well? Well, the, the windup that you probably remember, my career had really uh, hit I think a it was road. like that, Jim. I think it was like you would do this, but you're, you're, like oh, your yeah, foot that, would stay out there. That was the slide step. Yeah. I was probably the first pitcher that used what they now call the slide step. And 
up until the 70s, there wasn't a lot of speed in the game. Aparicio in the American League, then along came Campaneris in the American League, rather. And then, of course, the National League had Brock and Morgan and, and Maury Wills. And so now the, the getting the ball to the catcher was more important. So Johnny Sane had me, he said, well, when you stand in a normal position, what's the first thing you do? You lift your leg and you, you go backwards. So yeah. let's put that foot way out here and put the glove on the arm, and then you can just unload and go so I can it's get It's a quicker the, release. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, that was that was very effective, and we incorporated that with my windup into a um, – kind of a quick pitch motion and uh, with Johnny who was my most influential pitching coach we it kind of resurrected my career yeah. now what was that when you joined the Phillies in the mid-70s what was that like you know joining the likes of Lefty and all you know a lot of the guys that were you know ended up be a lot of those guys making on the or on that 1980 team you know I I, I really look forward to it. I was so fortunate I'd had two really good years with the White Sox and then Roland Heeman the general manager came to me and he said you know Mr. Allen is losing a lot of money uh, and you're due for a nice raise. And he said, I think we could get some young talent for you. There's three teams in the National League that are looking for veteran pitchers, the Mets, the Pirates, and the Phillies. Well, I had followed the Phillies. First of all, I was always a Philadelphia baseball fan because of my mm-hmm. dad and the A's, and I knew the Phillies were getting better every year. I said, boy, if you could work a trade with the Phillies, that would be great, which they did. They got Dick Ruthven and Roy Thomas and Mike Buskey, and then they – traded Dick to Atlanta for Ralph Gar. So Chuck Tanner had said to, I think, Paul Owens, uh, he said, now pitch him every four days, every three. I come off a year of, uh, I think I started 43 games and pitched 300 innings. But Danny really was more, he wanted to match up guys. So he would say, well, I'm going to skip you against Montreal. Hmm. I said, why? He said, well, they got a lot of right-hand hitters. I said, well, Danny, I've been in the league 15 years. I, I had to get a right-hand hitter out or two. Right, right. <laughs> but I never really got into a, a, a good groove. Then when I did, then he put me into pinch run spur of the moment one day in St. Louis for Bull. And uh, St. Louis had this loose dirt, even though they had turf. And I came around, slid into third, and I cracked my kneecap. Hmm. Uh, so that kind of ended my effectiveness as a, as a starter. But I, I really, I say the 1977 team talent wise was the best team. Timmy McCarver and I would talk about that all the time. Uh, you know, we just didn't quite get past the Reds or the Dodgers, yep. but we won a hundred games. Those first two years won the division, all three great well, then teams. Tim came back in your life as a broadcaster, yes, right? He did uh, helping you in your broad and you, you had a long and storied broadcasting career and, and Tim was probably one of your influences. Oh, we stayed very close. I was so honored. They're, they're completing a documentary on me, which should be done pretty quick. And they interviewed Tim a lot and he'd always said I was his best friend in baseball and on a sad note, but memorable note, I was holding Timmy's hand when he passed away mm. in Memphis on February 16th. Wow. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, he we would sit on the bench and say the runner was scoring, but he trained me to look around the field what else was going on. So we'd say, hey, the, you know, the hitter should have been on second now because they overthrew the cutoff man. So we'd look for things like that, that when I did get into broadcasting, that uh, that helped me a great deal. I have to ask you about pace of play. I'm sure you've been asked this a lot because you were known to be a quick worker. And, uh, well, a couple things. First of all, do you feel like it gives um, the pitcher the advantage when you work quick? You know, uh, certainly now uh, the, the, uh, the pitchers and the hit- hitters have to adjust this to this pace of play. But 
did you feel like that was an advantage? Is that was that one of the reasons you work quick or just? Oh, and there's no question it's an advantage. I just cringe when I hear some pitcher nowadays say, well, I don't have enough time to recover between pitches. You know, that's right. that's nonsense. But uh, when I got together with Johnny in Chicago, I had kind of a long motion and then a little spring at the end of it, a little zip on the end of it. And I'd lost a little of that arm strength or speed. And so he said, well, we got to get you a quicker release, quicker release. So finally... I said, okay, we're going to take it to the ultimate level. I said, the bases are loaded. The guys just hit a one-hopper right back on me. I'm a step-and-throw. And I tried it in spring training, and the hitters were baffled. You know, and Brooks Robinson said, you know, I time my hitting motion by the pitcher. When he starts his, I start mine. He said, you're not giving me any timing mechanism. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was very that was very effective for me, and it was – you know, like a lot of things, it was just done out of desperation. <laughs> and we mentioned in the very beginning, Ted Williams, who were some of the toughest hitters that just were either from an intimidation factor or just in general, just tough hitters against you that you faced? Yeah, well, over a career in the most at-bats, Al Kaline was the toughest guy for me to get out. Uh, Frank Howard had his moments, and even Reggie Smith, who isn't, you know, Hall of Famer. Reggie was a great switching outfielder, and he, he hit me real well. So there were guys like that. But Kaline was the one uh, game after game. Brooks Robinson had uh, – as high an average, but he didn't do the damage that right. Al did because the four hitters I faced more than any in my career were Aparicio, Yastrzemski, uh, Brooks Robinson, and Al Kaline. Hmm. Yeah. And did Greg Maddox call you when he passed you for the most gold gloves? Right, because you had sixteen, yeah, and then I think he ended up with eighteen, right? So when he yeah, when he- I I uh, I saw him in San Diego. I was on a motorhome trip because uh, my late wife had subsequently passed away cancer we were on a motorhome trip all around the country so i went out to the ballpark at san diego and i said mad dog uh you're gonna break my gold glove record but i got another one for you to shoot at i said oldest pitcher to steal a base (laughs) i was was 41 years seven months or whatever (laughs) so now during the summer i get a a, an email or a a little message from their (laughs) pr guy maddox just broke your record oh is that right (laughs) so everyone says how competitive he is yeah so i i saw him uh i i actually presented him with an award at the new york writers dinner so i said was that the back end of a double steal he said, no, it was a straight steal. He said, actually, I dropped down a bunt, got on first base, and then I stole wow. a second. Wow. I said, okay, it's legitimate. Wow, that is awesome. <laughs> you had mentioned uh, Charlie Manuel before you were teammates, and John and I, he's one of our favorite guys. Did you ever face Charlie? And what kind of, you know, he, what kind of hitter was Charlie? Oh, Charlie, would, he would always say, you know, Kitty, I could, if I played every day, I could hit. But in those days, <laughs> I, you didn't have a DH. We right. had a solid outfield. Right. And all Charlie would do is he'd get a chance to pinch hit once in a while. And he, he always likes to, to, you know, to kind of kid me about it is that uh, I'd say Charlie, it was uh, Charlie, Greg Nettles. We had three or four more extra guys. We only carried nine pitchers in, so we had a lot of extra men. And I'd say, how many swings you got in spring training? He said, well, we got 10. I said, all right, five for you. And then I said, I'm not going to tell you what's coming the next five. That's pitching practice. And I said, I like to, I got to learn. I want to move the ball up and in like I did on Reggie Jackson, guys. I can move them off the plate. So I said, I'm going to do that once in a while. And I'd end up hitting Charlie. <laughs> Kitty, it hit me on purpose. Oh, <laughs> you don't want Charlie charging you, too. Charlie's a big dude. No. But then when, when Charlie got to over to Japan, you yeah, know, then, yeah. then that was such a, 
great move for him and a great career move. I'm happy for him. You know, it's funny. And uh, we had fantasy camp. Charlie comes down to fantasy camp every year. I had asked him a question. I said, Charlie, you know, are you fluent in Japanese? He said, oh, you know, I know enough to be dangerous, but not really. Well, someone then asked him a question like two days later uh, in a banquet and said, uh, Charlie, when, the, when you came out to bat, was there a song for you when you came out to bat? Next thing you know, Charlie, were you there? I don't no, know you there. told him about this. He, Charlie, in front of 200 people, breaks into song in Japanese and sings the song. The whole like, song. Goes yeah. to the, sings for two minutes, the whole song. Really? And we're all looking like dumbfounded going, wow, Charlie, like where did that come from? That was his walk-up song. That was his, that was wow. his walk-up song. Exactly I can't right. imagine Charlie having walk-up. Right. He did his own walk-up, right. Um, all right, as a broadcaster too, you've had so many great moments. Is there one particular game or moment within a game that uh, that stands out as a broadcaster? Well, I, I think I did uh, Doc Gooden's no-hitter in 96. I did David Wells' perfect game. I actually predicted it early mm. in the game because the Twins had nobody in the lineup except Paul Molitor. And I said to Kenny Singleton, my my broadcast partner, I said, this got perfect game written all over mm. it because he got the first right. six, seven guys out. And he, that, was, that was a fun game. But I would say the most emotional and easiest game I ever had to do was Derek Jeter's last home game. So we had a dedicated camera on Derek from the time he came in the clubhouse. And I'd said to Bob Costas, this will be the easiest game because all we have to do is shut up and watch right. and react to what Derek did. He was so nervous. In fact, I always talked about, and Don Zimmer had told me this, Derek was the best at this ground ball to the arm side that he could flip his, the pocket of his glen. He, in one motion, would make that play better than yeah. anybody. Mm. And he had one early in the game, and he bobbled it. Mm, right. <laughs> I said, that that kind of indicates how nervous he was. And then, of course, the dramatic ending when it looked like uh, the Yankees were beaten, he came back and tied it, and he got the winning hit in the in the 10th inning. So right. that was that was a very uh, memorable game. Were, I, I'm not sure. Were you broadcasting in 2009 for the Yankees? I was then doing uh, MLB. Oh, MLB, okay. Yeah, my last year with the Yankees was 2006, and then my wife and I took that motorhome trip in 2007. I was doing some blogging and stuff for okay. the Yes Network, and then when the MLB Network launched uh, – Tony Petiti hired me and Bob Costas and I did like a dozen games. So I was still doing, in fact, I did, uh, I was telling Charlie today, one of the, uh, one of the most enjoyable games was Pedro hooked up with Tim Lincecum mm. and Pedro Ooh. gave up a home run to the first hitter and then just shut him mm. down. And yeah. it was one of those two to one games in a buck 58. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Quick announcer's dream. Right. Well, that 09 series against the Yankees, Phillies, Yankees was tough for us because I think we thought with that 08 squad uh, that we had some years in us, especially, uh, you know, front office was very aggressive in, in uh, free agents with Roy Holiday and Cliff Lee. Right. And, uh, you know, we went for broke. So that 2009 was a disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that was the, that was the last time the Yankees had, yeah, and what they do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there a guy in the uh, a player right now in the current game that you that you follow just because you like their style of play or you enjoy watching? Um, well, when he's healthy, because I'm still affiliated with the Twins, Byron Buxton. Right. Uh, yeah, and I think I probably follow uh, pitchers more. I, I like to see the guys that are uh, that are off speed lefties like I was. <laughs> I like to see them do well, but, uh, I don't, I don't watch as many games. Uh, I don't, I watch very few games because it frustrates me when they take the starter out after right. six innings and, uh, they don't advance runners. And, uh, you know, we were sitting in spring training, Paul Molitor, Tony Oliver, Rod Carew, myself. And I said, what are we doing here? Because 
we're we're total strangers in terms of how they play the game right. today. We're yeah. just so all we do, all I do there is I walk outside to the patio and I sign autographs for two hours. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, all right, and let's talk about too. Last year you were inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, and it was a big class, right? But yes. uh, and and that must have been talk about that. That must have been very emotional because again, all the years you put in as a player and as a broadcaster. Well, you know, I was on the ballot. I've been on the ballot for quite a few years and, and missed by one vote, two votes here and there. And so my expectations were not like Big Poppy was waiting by his phone because, you know, he obviously <laughs> knew he was probably going right. to get in. And uh, so I, I knew when I looked at the committee, they had Ozzie Smith, guys I played with and against. Schmitty was there. Fergie Jenkins was a big supporter. Joe Torrey. So I looked at the makeup of the committee because that's what it comes down to. And I said, well, I got a chance. And I said, this will be the fairest hearing that I've ever had. And I know the drill. The Hall of Fame said, will you be at your phone between X hour and X? I used to be in the morning. Right. Now that they announced it on ESPN, uh, they said, if you can be at your phone between 515, 545, we don't call with bad news. So I'm just sitting there at home uh, with Margie, and I'm looking at golf. And even though you want to downplay it, it's on your right. mind, you know, the whole day. It's a stressful day. And then uh, I think about halfway through that time period, I see my phone, and it's a 917 area code. Well, Cooperstown, 607. I thought, well, I'll answer it. And the first words I hear is, is this Jim Cott? Yes. This is Jane Clark from the National Baseball mm. Hall of Fame. Oh, wow. That's all she had to say. Right. Your, life, your life changes just, right, like, right. just like that. Did you get awesome. emotional on that call? Yeah. You know, I uh, the first thing I thought of, and I mentioned that a lot in my uh, induction speech, was, you know, my dad, because my dad was such a, an avid fan. But at my age, he's not around anymore. But I, I thought about what my dad would think. I got that picture of him standing in front of the Hall of Fame mm. in 1947. Wow. So, yeah, and then I, you know, I just, I, I think that's a time when you really reflect and look at how fortunate you are to have certain guys, like mine was Jack McKeon in the minor leagues, uh, and he came to my induction. He was my playing manager. He's now 90. Hmm. Uh, he's 90. He's 93. I'll be 85. And he came there, but he was my minor league manager in, in 58. When he was 27, I was 19. If I didn't have Jack, I don't think I'd be in the big leagues because uh, I started out the year poorly. He could tell I was a little on the edge. He called me and he said, kid, you're going to pitch in the big leagues. He said, you're pitching for me every four days. Mm. Uh, we only have seven pitchers. I met you in between the little relief. So by the end of the year, I pitched 245 innings. And I really, as an aside, that's what kids miss today. They go up and down, up and right. down. So I got a whole year to really find out a lot about myself, about pitching. And so I started thinking about guys that, you know, influenced me like Jack and Johnny Sane. Uh, and then since then, it's been a whirlwind, a whirlwind in a good, in a good yep. way. Yeah, it's, it's really been far beyond uh, what I ever thought it would be. That's special, great. special time. Well, we go to thinking just really, uh, you know, lofty thoughts there, John, to your crazy quiz. Or uh, you think you're ready for this, Jim? You probably haven't had a quiz since you were in high school. Pro probably not. <laughs> All right, Jim, I'm going I'm to pull a Tony LaRusso. I'm going to put sunglasses on. You're going to think that's, you know, but it's because I have readers in it. I didn't, I didn't remember my readers. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to walk in here saying, why is Brazier wearing sunglasses? All right. So we have eight questions, multiple choice about your life. Okay. If you get six out of eight, 
Tom is best friends with a fanatic, and I'm sure you have grandkids. We're going to send some fanatic stuff to some of your grandkids. Okay. All right. Does that work? Sure. All right. First question. You went to high school in Zeeland, right? Michigan. Yes. Which of these celebrities is not from Zeeland? Okay. There's, and there's, I'm a little liberal on the uh, celebrity word. <laughs> Term celebrity. <laughs> Term celebrity. So, uh, not a hotbed of cele- four, celebrities. Well, four, there's three people that, I'm going to name three people that are, f- that are, from Zealand, one's not. Tell me who's not. All right, Ron Essink, who's former NFL tackle for the Seahawks and Cowboys. Buffalo Bills and Steelers uh, tight end J- uh, Jay Remiersma. Uh, comedian and actor Soupy Sales from Match Game. And Renee Geerlings, who's an actress in Halloween 2 and Compound Fracture. So who's not from Zealand? Is it Ron? Soupy, Soupy, <laughs> Soupy right. Sales. I mean, first I know, of all, you're, you're not going to make Jay, up those three names. Yeah, I know Jay Reimersman. I know Ron. <laughs> I probably, and I probably butchered his name, too, didn't yeah. I? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, used to, I used to always do a match game 75. I brought it back, Tom. You brought it back. Soupy I Sales. It back. Back you are one for one. All right. You attended Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Which of these celebrities did not go to Hope College? Oh, okay. Uh, DJ Rayburn, Major League Baseball umpire. Uh, Sufjan Stevens, I've actually heard him. Uh, he's an Academy Award-nominated musician. Kim Zimmer, who's a four-time Emmy-winning actress from the soap opera Guiding Light. And then Bob Denver, who played Gilligan on Gilligan's Island. The second one. Sufjan Stevens, is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah. So you think Gilligan went to uh, Hope College? <laughs> well, you said one of them didn't, right? Yeah, yeah, one of them did not. It was Gilligan. It was, was Gilligan. It? it was <laughs> Gilligan, yeah. Right. I didn't hear the, uh, I haven't heard That's the right. other fellas. Sorry about that. All right. Yeah. I think you'll be fine. In 1957, your first minor league stop was, this is going to go back, you're going to have to go back in the memory time machine. 1957, your first major league, minor league stop was Superior Nebraska for the Superior Senators, correct? Which was, yes. which was not a teammate. So three were teammates on that team. One was not. Tell me who was not the teammate. Okay. Dan Stevenson, James Barbie. Robert Boyd, Robert Scalzi. The, 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 even though it was Bob Scalzi and it was Larry Barbie, the first one you mentioned was who? Dan Stevenson. He wasn't. Yes, that's our video guy. <laughs> okay. Video Dan Stevenson. Oh, yeah, video Dan. I knew you knew him as Video Dan, but I right. threw it off by saying Dan Stevenson. <laughs> right. All right, now it gets a little easier. That was kind of the silly one. So you were two for three. How many, I always love to know, again, you never, some guys know their stats right, you know, to a T. Yeah. Some guys don't. Uh, how many career wins did you have? Do you want the multiple choice? Uh, I'll, I'll 283. Give you- <laughs> Bang. He's got it. <laughs> I mean, nice. uh, it's unbelievable. All right, three for four. In 1976, who led the Phillies with 189 hits? Was it Dave Cash, Gary Maddox, Larry Bow, or Jay Johnstone? Dave Cash. Dave Cash. Yes. He is on a roll, Tommy. Yes. I think he's pretty close to, uh, right? He's got yeah. four, four or five. Yep. All right. Steve Carlton went 20 and seven in 1976. Who was second on that team with 18 wins? Was it LC, Jim Lomborg, Tom Underwood, or Randy Lurch? Jim Lomborg. He is a one away from qualifying, right? Uh, yes. all right. Your number is retired by the twins. Which twins played his, uh, is which twins player is second in career home runs behind Harmon Killebrew? So uh, he has 293. Now, Killebrew had 559, but this twin is second in career home runs with 293. Is it uh, Tony Oliva, Tori Hunter, Kent Urbeck, or Bob Allison? Uh, I'm going to say Kent Herbeck. Bam. He's, got, he's qualified. And we can go for seven of eight right here. How many presidential administrations did your playing career take you through? Seven. 
Seven. <laughs> Can you name him? Uh, Eisenhower. Yeah. <laughs> Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan. How wow. about that? Tremendous. How about that? Uh, well, awesome. You know, you mentioned something. To, I have to bring it up. You mentioned on the broadcast, Jim, that you've, you've been part of a lot of first ball ceremonies, you know, during the years. And uh, now you do a cool thing. You sign that baseball and then you give it to a fan. Well, what's the meaning of that? I love it. You know, I was... I was, uh, we talk about a lot about growing the game and getting people interested. And I don't know, just on the spur of the moment, I said to Margie, you know, all these first pitches, I got the one I threw to Torrey Hunter. That was the 50th anniversary of our World Series team. And I actually threw that from the rubber. Okay, nice. <laughs> but that was, that was a little eight, scary. eight years ago. Wow. <laughs> so I scary. said, you know, and you get those balls and you, you give them this. I said, you know, it'd be nice. I said, I think I'll find a little boy. And I'll go give the ball to mm. him. And she said, find a little girl. Mm. So right behind the, uh, I think one of the fellows that escorted me down, they found this little girl. And I said, you know, Booney signed it. I signed it. I said, you never know. You might, you make a baseball fan that way. Right. You do something productive other than having it sit in a case somewhere. Well, <laughs> and one last Jim, you mentioned uh, what we talked about, which is still like, I would love to be in your foursome because I want to see you hit right-handed, left-handed. You're about to go out on the course. So are certain so you have certain clubs that are right-handed and certain clubs that are left-handed? How do you, how do you divide yeah, them up? I, I usually hit my longer shots left-handed. Okay, so your driver and your three-wood. Yeah, because from a golf mechanic standpoint, my left-hand swing is what they call more shallow, so I hit it better off a tee. My right-hand swing is steeper. So, so your I wedges usually, and all I that. I usually find the ground better. I mean, I don't always, but that's the that's huh. a, from about one forty in. I would hit right-handed clubs. And how about putting? I put. Actually, my wife was a golf pro, and then she quit because she's out fly fishing today somewhere mm. near Harrisburg. And so she has this old putter, a little shorter putter, and she puts like a demon. And I said she doesn't play golf anymore. I said I'm going to start using your putter. And it's a little short uh, Odyssey right-handed one, and I've been putting well with it. So mm. that's that's the putter of the month. And that's a right-handed or left-handed? Right. Right-handed. Yeah, I'm left-eyed, so I see the line <laughs> oh, better. Can you imagine, John? <laughs> I, just, I, I can't golf with one side, so let alone two. But, uh, Jim, thanks so much for uh, oh, joining us you. on our podcast. Thanks for being uh, part of Alumni Weekend. I know the fans were thrilled to see you. Uh, I think you're one of everybody's favorites, so I uh, just really uh, appreciate you joining us. Thank you. I Thank enjoyed you, Jim. It. It really a lot appreciate of fun. it. Good, All right. All right, good luck out there. Good Thank luck, you. and uh, we'll sign off, John. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you next time on Phillies Backstage.